0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Midcast live stream. It's a video show featuring dissenting voices the establishment would rather silence. I am your host, Manar Mohawish Adley, founder and editor in chief of Midpress News. Um, we are currently live today on YouTube, on Twitch on Twitter, and on Facebook on our MIT Press uh, channels. So hope that you can join us here today. And if you are asking or inquiring if this video will be available later on, this video will be available um, on our channels as well, and as a podcast on our iTunes and Spotify channels. And obviously, we would appreciate all of your support um, in supporting this live stream and all of our podcasts by becoming a member on our Patreon page for Mint Press News. Well, we have a lot to talk about today. Um, you know, one of the biggest stories that have erupted this week has been the Cuba protest. And I have two very special and very important guests who are experts on the subject matter uh, joining me to break through the media propaganda machine. Uh, on the Cuba protests that are only working to promote regime change. And so we'll get right to it. Uh, we have Benjamin Norton joining us today, a very special guest, very excited to have him. He's the editor at The Gray Zone. He's also a journalist. Assistant
1: editor, yeah. Editor. Max Blumenthal's is the editor.
0: <laughs> uh, assistant editor at The Gray Zone. Um, he's a, you know, And he's based in Nicaragua. As well, and then we have Alan McLeod, who is a propaganda scholar. We're so honored to work with him. He's also our senior staff writer at Mint Press News. And so, you know, Ben, I want to just get right into it and start with you. What have what has been your reaction to the protests? I mean, can you get can you break down what these protests consist of um, in Cuba?
1: Great. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Mint Press is one of the best outlets, and I it's always a pleasure to to speak with you all and and be part of your work what's going on in cuba right now is really similar to what has gone on in numerous left wing governments in latin america it's clearly a kind of destabilization operation and it's part of a kind of manual in fact the irony of the the hashtag that is the kind of slogan of this astroturf campaign sos cuba is the exact same hashtag that was used to try to destabilize Nicaragua here where I am right now in 2018 and the Sandinista government, which is a close ally of Cuba, of course. And the U.S. government declared that Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua are the so-called troika of tyranny, sometimes actually referred to as the troika of resistance. They're the three uh, longest ruling socialist governments in Latin America and have anti-imperialist foreign policy and free healthcare and education for people and strong social programs. And they serve as a threat of a good example for the United States. The US has dedicated billions and billions of dollars to destabilizing these countries. And in the case of Cuba, not only is it a matter of destabilization, it's a matter of 60 years of a nonstop terror war that Washington has waged on the small island nation of just 11 million people and a criminal blockade since 1960, roughly 1960 or 1961 the US has imposed illegal unilateral sanctions that became a blockade, an economic embargo of Cuba. And this prevents Cuba not only from being able to do business with the United States. That's a small part of it. And if you listen to some of these people in the mainstream corporate media talk about the blockade, that's what they think it is. It's much worse than that. It really is a kind of medieval blockade because not only can Cuba not do business with the United States, but Cuba is prevented from doing business with many countries around the world and many firms and companies and organizations around the world that fear what are called secondary sanctions, because the U.S. government says that if a country or a firm does business with Cuba, the U.S. government can threaten that country or that firm with sanctions for supposedly violating U.S. sanctions on Cuba. So this is a de facto medieval blockade, It's gone on for over 60 years. The entire international community is opposed to it. It's really important to stress that. And actually, if I can share my screen here, I just want to show, just to get some context when we're talking about Cuba, it's really important, I think, to talk about like what other countries are saying because so much in mainstream corporate media, they only talk about the US, right? And the reality is that 184 nations in the United Nations, almost every single country on earth just voted against this illegal U.S. blockade. If this screen sharing works, I'm going to try to, hopefully this, I don't know if you all can see that there. There we go. 184 countries just voted against the illegal U.S. blockade of Cuba. There were only two countries that voted in support of the blockade, of course, the U.S. and apartheid Israel, the 51st state. And then there were three abstentions. And those abstentions were the far-right narco regime in Colombia, the far right Bolsonaro regime in Brazil and the far right Ukrainian regime, which is infiltrated by neo Nazis and which is trying to join NATO. So we're talking about an illegal criminal blockade that has gone on for sixty years. Everyone in the world knows what's happening. Everyone in the world knows that it's the U.S. violating international law. But of course, there's so much fake news, there's so much propaganda, which we can talk about. And, and of course, Alan is a, is an expert on propaganda and fake news. So I'll. Leave him to do that. But in terms of the political context, we have to understand that yes, there are some economic difficulties in Cuba, but those are almost entirely caused by the illegal criminal US blockade with the express intention of destroying the country. And there's one other final thing I just want to mention here before pivoting back to you all. If I can share my screen again, and that's that the explicitly stated goal of the US blockade is to destroy the Cuban economy. That's not my opinion. That is what the U.S. government has internally admitted. So, after the triumph of the the, the Cuban Revolution in 1959, and immediately after in 1960, a US internal State Department cable, which is now published by the Office of the Historian, it's publicly available, admitted admitted that the majority of Cubans supported Castro and the revolution, and there is no effective political opposition. So, what was their response? Their response was the same response of Richard Nixon. When, when the socialist Salvador Allende won the election freely and fairly in, in Chile, the response of the U.S. government after 1970 was, quote, make the economy scream. That's what Kissinger and Nixon said. And here, it's the same exact policy a decade before. In 1960, the U.S. State Department said, quote, the only foreseeable means of alienating internal support is through disenchantment and disaffection based on economic dis- dissatisfaction, and hardship. And then the, the US State Department cable continues saying that every possible means should be undertaken promptly to weaken the economic life of Cuba, adding that they should make the greatest inroads in denying money and supplies to Cuba to decrease monetary and real wages to bring about hunger, desperation, and overthrow of government. They say that openly. Hunger. Desperation and overthrow of government. The US government is intentionally using this blockade and these sanctions to create hunger and desperation with the goal of overthrowing the government. They've been doing that for 60 years. They're doing it as well in Venezuela and Iran and many countries. And that's exactly what's going on right now in Cuba, too.
0: Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you talked about this context. I mean, you really laid down the groundwork of uh, the framework of what the propaganda campaign has been uh for uh, for Cuba for, by the United States I just want to read out a statement really quick quick here um that came out from the White House that we stand with the Cuban people and their Clarion for call for freedom and relief from the tragic trip of the grip of the pandemic and from the decades of repression and economic suffering to which they have been subjected to by Cuba's authoritarian regime. And so, as you can see, the narrative by the White House and by the uh, U.S. political class has been completely flipped upside down to, you know, to paint the Cuban government as uh, the oppressor, while the United States is just sweeping in like that bald eagle, just coming in to bring in some some good old fashioned freedom. Uh, to uh, the Cuban people. And so I want to talk about the protests because right now the Western corporate media, especially in the United States, has been headlining with these protests um, and promoting them as the need for regime change and socialism is very bad. Yet a lot of these protesters are waving the American flag. And we all know what happens when America comes in and swoops in and and brings that kind of freedom and regime change. And yet on on another note, a lot of the images that have been shown, apart from the ones from the smaller protests with the American flag, some of these images of mass protests have actually been pro-Cuban government demonstrations, basically telling the United States to leave them alone and we support the Cuban government, yet the U.S. media has been using these mass protests, these images coming out of Cuba, as evidence of anti-Cuban government protests. So. Um, Alan, I want you to kind of tell me who these protesters are. And if you can uh, explain to us how Western media has painted them, apart from, you know, expand on what I just explained.
2: Yeah, sure. I suppose they started on Sunday and they were pretty small. Uh, They started in a town relatively close to Havana in the west side of Cuba. And it seems that uh, they started because of a lack of uh, food and medicines. That is going on. If you read the media, you'll that will be uh, solely attributed to the faults of the Cuban government, or maybe because socialism inherently doesn't work. But as Ben said earlier, one of the key driving factors in Cuba's economic problems right now is this enormous blockade from the world's sole superpower, which is stopping companies trading with Cuba. It's stopping uh, ships uh, entering Cuban waters. It really, if. Uh, eff- Effectively has the uh, has the outcome of strangling a population very slowly. That's what Cubans talk about—the asphyxiation. So I think, first of all, there is plenty of reason to be to feel that there are justified reasons to protest in Cuba. There are shortages of uh, goods. There are shortages of medicines. And it may well be that this uh, process did start that way—a uh, real grassroots thing that um, was relatively small in one place. But it was immediately picked up upon by uh, people in the U.S. There was an interesting uh, little discussion on MSNBC. They brought on their head of NBC Latin America. And she said that um, they started talking, the protesters started talking with their friends in Miami and Florida. And from there, it got massively signal boosted uh, across the island, across the United States, to the point where, you know, the president of the United States was tweeting about it everyone in the Republican Party was immediately lining up to denounce Joe Biden as being soft on communism, even though he released that statement, which made it absolutely clear that he was supporting these protests. Uh, media stars and uh, you know pop singers like Pitbull were putting out stuff saying SOS Cuba. And so while it may have started possibly uh, as a genuine grassroots movement, although we don't really know that, the fact that it kind of took over Cuba uh, was not natural in the slightest, but even when we talk about it, I mean, this wasn't actually, in the grand scheme of things, such a massive protest. Some what? of the some of the numbers are saying that there might have been a few hundred in Havana and maybe a few thousand across Cuba, but you know, compared to what we've seen in the U.S., where tens of millions of people went on uh, went on marches last year, this is really small potatoes. And what I really think this shows is like maybe if this is all the United States has got uh, in terms of its massive clout. If, if all it's, you know, if all it's got is uh, the ability to get a couple of thousand people on the streets, many of whom might have actually been protesting about something quite different and not supported their agenda. I was speaking to one professor uh, earlier today who said that quite a lot of people who were protesting were saying things like, well, they're building hotels for the rich, but they're not, you know, providing for us. So they were actually some of the protesters seem to be like taking a much more sort of ultra left position in terms of like criticizing the government from the left. So, yeah, as you said, the media has hyped this up into like this worldwide spectacular where it trends on Twitter for more than 24 hours. But ultimately, it doesn't really go anywhere. As you said, there are absolutely outrageous things going on in the media, promoting fake news, uh, uh, showing pictures of uh, protests in uh, Buenos Aires or in Egypt and pretending that they're from Cuba. Or, you know, we saw outlets like CNN and National Geographic use pictures of uh, sympathy demonstrations among the reactionary community in Miami and strongly insinuating that those were actually taken from Cuba, the actual images of these protests that have come out, you know, through cell phone coverage shows that they're not really enormous and they haven't really been brutally repressed. And as we said before, some um, some of the pictures, the counter demonstrations certainly seem to be much larger. And that's where the press has really gotten their their foot stuck in it, where they're actually showing pictures of pro-government demonstrations and claiming that they're counter-demonstrations. So I think this whole thing, if once we write the autopsy autopsy on it, it might be like a mountain out of a molehill. We've seen this in Venezuela and other Latin American countries before, where these small protests get hyped, whereas the big protests that are happening right now, like the national strike in Colombia, which has gone on for months, has got barely any coverage. Or the fact that Haiti has been in this like low level, like civil war government versus uh, people for three years since 2018, got barely any coverage until uh, the president, the US backed dictator, Jovenel Moïse, was uh, killed uh, earlier this month. So I think that might be uh, I think that might be the case where this is really a kind of a mediatic coup, which ultimately didn't get go very far.
0: Well, I really like that you defend it as a coup because, you know, there are so many big issues taking place like in Yemen, for example, where 23 million people um, are on the brink of starvation and the Western corporate media, if it truly, truly cared about human rights, democracy, or had any sense of humanity, the first thing that they would be covering would be the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Or it would be also covering the humanitarian crisis in Haiti, where the United States has been plundering and occupying this this tiny island nation uh, for so long And, you know, it's basically been an outpost for Western imperialism and corporations to plunder this nation uh, and also for the UN uh, peacekeepers to, uh, you know, violate so many human rights uh, there. And then in Cuba, we have the national strike that has been taking place for over a month now. And uh, the police have literally been raping protesters in
2: Colombia, not Cuba.
0: In Colombia, I'm sorry, in Colombia, that's what I meant to say. In Colombia, and the media has literally barely even touched on the subject. I think Mitt Press and like the gray zone have been some of the very few media outlets have been who have been actually covering uh, what's taking place there. So there is clearly a media uh, coup taking place. Um, you know, Ben, I'm curious to know if you think that, you know, the United States is going to use these small protests Um, an attempt to spark a color revolution. Um, It's very clear that with, you know, the the demonstrations that are happening in Miami, um, it kind of feels that way. What do you think about that?
1: The U.S. is always trying to spark a so-called color revolution in Cuba. It's tried hundreds and hundreds of times over decades. I want to remind people that the U.S. has also waged a terrorist war. There's no other word for it. Against Cuba, similar to the terrorist war it's waged against Nicaragua, the Sandinista government here, and against Venezuela. We've seen these violent attacks. Let's not forget that in 1976, CIA backed and trained Cuban terrorists blew up a civilian uh, Cuban airliner, massacring dozens of civilians. And they've also they bombed dozens of hotels and other businesses in Cuba with the goal of killing civilians, especially tourists, targeting tourists to try to destroy the tourism industry in Cuba because tourism is an important source of revenue. And related to the protests going on right now, one of the reasons that there are some economic difficulties that are more so than in the past few years, because of course the blockade has gone on for 60 years, is because of COVID, of course. The COVID lockdown measures have really hurt the economy and the blockade has prevented Cuba from buying syringes and buying certain medicines and medical equipment And it's also starved the government of tourism revenue and the local economy of tourism revenue, which is a really important source, not only of money, but also it's a source of hard foreign currency, which Cuba needs to do business to the extent that it can do business with other countries. It needs foreign currencies, especially dollars, because the US dollar is the de facto global currency reserve. The US has this chokehold on the international economic system. So the COVID pandemic has really decimated the tourism sector in Cuba, which has created, which has compounded the economic problems caused by the US blockade. But getting back to the color revolution attempts, I mean, the US, let's let's not forget, the US invaded Cuba in the so-called Bay of Pigs invasion, which was a terrorist invasion of the country, similar to the attempted terrorist invasion of Venezuela in last year in the so in May, the so-called Operation Gideon, and Let's not forget that the CIA, on the books, we know that the CIA and other U.S. government agencies orchestrated at least 638 assassination attempts just oh. against Fidel Castro. There are more assassination attempts against Fidel Castro than almost anyone else in human history, which is a lot about how much this small country in, in the Caribbean, Cuba, how much of a so-called threat it is, in scare quotes, to U.S. imperialism. I mean, it actually is a threat to U.S. imperialism, not to the American people. But it 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 says so much that the U.S. has spent so many billions of dollars trying to destabilize and overthrow this government. But in terms of what's going on right now, there are so many similarities to what happened in Nicaragua in 2018. And for people who don't know, it's not as well known. The Nicaraguan government right now, where where I live, where I am, it's a Sandinista government, which is a very close ally of Cuba, a revolutionary anti-imperialist socialist government. And they came back to power in 2007 through democratic elections, and they've been in power since 2007. So, and also, of course, the Chavista government in Venezuela, those are the three you know, strongest allies, socialist allies in Latin America, and they work together a lot. And there's a lot of similarities in the U.S. tactics they use to destabilize these governments. And in 2018 there were these protests that began, which are pretty similar to the protests we're seeing now in Cuba. And what happened is they started, they were very small protests in April, 2018. And there was this narrative that was constructed, which is similar to the misleading disingenuous narrative we've seen about Cuba. And the narrative we've seen in Cuba is supposedly that the government COVID response has been bad, that the Cuba supposedly botched the COVID response, which is hilarious coming from the United States, where 600,000 people died. And it's also hilarious considering that actually the three countries in Latin America with the best COVID response in terms of the fewest deaths just so happened to be the so-called Troika of tyranny, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, because these are socialized uh, health systems where you can go to that hospital for free. You don't pay a single cent. I have friends in Nicaragua, a friend of mine, His mother had cancer, and she got all of her chemotherapy, all of her treatment, and never paid a single penny. So it's not a surprising—it's not surprising that actually Cuba had one of the best COVID responses. But there's these misleading narratives, and similarly in Nicaragua, there was this absurd narrative that the government was trying to cut social security for poor people—a totally blatant lie. The people protesting were actually pushing for neoliberal IMF reforms, and they were backed by the U.S. government and the Chamber of Commerce here in Nicaragua. So what happens is not only is there all the fake news on social media, not only are there tons of bot accounts spreading here in Nicaragua, it was SOS Nicaragua. In Cuba, it was SOS Cuba, the same campaign, same manual. But also what they're trying to do is they're trying to confuse progressive-minded young millennials who say, oh, well. I mean, maybe, maybe there are legitimate grievances. Maybe the government did botch COVID. Maybe the government isn't spending on healthcare. It's It's insane propaganda, but it has an impact on young people. And that's the target of these operations. And if you look at the protests in Cuba, they're targeting young people who use social media, who use Instagram and Facebook. We're not Facebook really anymore. Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. That's where all this propaganda is. And that's why, finally, they're going after celebrities, They're trying to get all of these celebrities to tweet SOS Cuba, these actors, these musicians. And this whole thing started with this former porn actress. um, What's her name? Mia something.
2: Mia Khalifa.
1: She's the one that it started with. And she was tweeting all this stuff. And it's clear that she's being paid or being supported by right-wing Cuban forces because she's been tweeting like Cuban slang. There's this term that it's, this is, insulting Cuban slang singao there's no way she would know that term it's a very specific Cuban slang term so that's why if you look at all the bots they're trying to get all of these celebrities to go on board because their strategy for this this manual the, the soft coup manual is they have all the bots just just spam celebrities to try to get celebrities to speak out, so then they can have media coverage saying the celebrity spoke out. So then young people who who follow these social media influencers and celebrities will will think that there's some kind of progressive th- uprising going on in the country, and that the young millennials will say we have to support the moderate rebels or whatever.
0: All right. Well, and we have this problem here in the US, as you know, we, we've, we talk about this um, a lot with like the hipster, neoliberal, uh, so-called, um, you know, hipster propaganda outlets like, you know, Vice News, BuzzFeed. We have the same problem here. And they're actually also promoting a lot of this regime change uh, talking points through their news outlets because they're receiving many of their um, information directly from the State Department and through the Board of Broadcasting Governors, which is uh, a legal propaganda arm of the United States government, which is funded through our taxpayer money. And so, um, you know, I'm seeing definitely a trend and a correlation with that. And I'm curious to know, Alan, who some of these rappers are. And if you can talk about a little bit about the history of um, rappers and artists being used uh, to sponsor, um, you know, U.S. propaganda for regime change and the celebrities. I want to talk more about the celebrities that are pushing out these narratives.
2: Yeah, sure. There's a lot of Miami based rappers or rappers inside of Cuba, which have uh, come out in support of these protests. In fact, they seem to be almost leading them. One of the key figures is Yotuel, who, was, uh, who is Cuban, but he left, emigrated to uh, Miami, now lives a very comfortable life there as like Grammy award winning or Grammy nominated winning artist. Um, he was one of the people who really spoke out about it early on. Uh, he led a demonstration in Miami uh, Marco Rubio tweeted this out. He said, you know, it's, it's really telling, just to what Ben was talking about, it's really telling that, um, that these protests are not being led by activists, they're being led by artists. But what Marco Rubio isn't telling people is, is that the US has been targeting the artistic community, particularly the musical community, and in particular inside of that, the hip hop community for decades now. If you go to the NED or the USAID's website, these two sister organizations, which act essentially as a front for the CIA, uh, putting money into all sorts of uh, different countries uh, for various soft power tactics, you'll see that a lot of their grants are aimed at young people and in particular at the artistic community, because they think that um, music and art and uh, architecture, are things, things that young people like, dancing, etc., journalism will be the way of trying to co-opt and change the minds of young Cubans. And the hip hop community has really been part of that, uh, part of that movement for a long time. Uh, hip hop really exploded in Cuba in the late nineties, early two thousands. It has a very sort of unique feel to it because, you know, it's kind of being uh, made to go through a sort of forced isolation. And so that means that the music kind of flourishes and develops on its own. Uh, The US uh, forces like the NED and USAID had been for a long time trying to co-opt this movement because, um, yeah, I suppose uh, hip hop really became a really important thing in Cuba because they were talking about things that before had largely been kind of sidelined, things like racial issues. And the US really saw that as a potential great way of trying to, you know, knock a wedge between different parts of society. And uh, they, I'm not sure how much you know um, actual success they've had, but they've certainly be, been able to co-opt. Uh, they've certainly been able to co-opt a lot of uh, well-known rappers who have now been, uh, you know, talking about this, speaking out. Um, so yeah, I mean, when we talk about uh, you know artists leading this protest, we have to you know put a little asterisk next to that, saying that actually a lot of these artists are directly in the pay of uh, the uh, American forces like the USAID or the NED, but that's never really talked about, uh, in any of the coverage in the West or, you know, really, you know, even on social media, we've seen incredible amounts of like, uh, you know, retweets of uh, SOS Cuba from these uh, artists, but where it actually started was a Spanish based, uh, individual who tweeted it, I think, on Sunday, and since then, uh, analysis has shown that he's been retweeting SOS Cuba tweets, or putting them out at least, at a rate of five times per second for over 24 hours, according to uh, one Spanish journalist who looked into that. Now, that obviously is going to raise the profile of that and turn it into the number one trend worldwide. A lot of the, uh, a lot of the bot networks seem to be very, very crude. Everybody's tweeting out literally the same topics, literally the same sentences, which are just sort of cut and pasted. There are thousands of these, you know, uh, people tweeting the same thing, uh, in Spanish with SOS Cuba at the end. And yet Twitter doesn't really seem to be interested in doing anything about it. In fact, quite the opposite. The editorial team decided to put the Cuban protests, uh, at the top of the what's happening sidebar for over 24 hours, which really elevated this protest and made people worldwide and particularly in the United States think that this protest was far more significant than it was. And I think that was precisely the, the, the idea behind it, because uh, certainly in the past few years, we've seen Twitter becoming increasingly close to the US government, uh, deleting accounts that are pro-Cuban uh, government or really any uh, enemy state of the United States. We've seen Twitter deleting, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of Chinese accounts, which most of us will never see because they're tweeting in Mandarin or Cantonese or Iranian accounts or Venezuelan accounts, even to the point where they're uh, suspending or deleting heads of state of foreign of uh, foreign countries that the U.S. doesn't like. So I think uh, a lot of the time we have to start thinking about social media as being uh, increasingly indistinguishable from the national security state, which uh, which tries to keep it slightly at arm's length, but ultimately they seem to be working uh, working in harmony uh, on this yeah, issue. And,
0: yeah, and I think that's a really good point because now Twitter and all of these social media giants uh, are are you know the, the the tech overlords that rule over us now <laughs> are an arm of the U.S. war machine and the weapons manufacturers and the think tanks. Um, and the foreign governments, the dictatorships and apartheid Israel. I mean, think about Marco Rubio, who's given unlimited, you know, airtime to talk about Cuba and to promote regime change. And he was the guy who tweeted out um, threatening Maduro with the same fate as Gaddafi, who was sodomized and dragged through the streets of Libya, the leader of Libya. And so this guy, Marco Rubio, who claims to be, you know, a Christian, he's, literally threatening another leader with assassination um, and bloodshed, and he is given unlimited airtime on these social media platforms to promote violence, while people like us are constantly, you know, independent journalists and activists for peace and inclusion, are, you know, regularly, um, you know, we're throttled, we're shadow banned, you know, the algorithms don't work in our interest, but yet those people that promote death and destruction are promoted and put at the very, very top. And I really want to talk about these bots, okay? Um, Ben, you know, our YouTube channel right now is filled with bots. Uh, My Instagram (laughs) posts about Cuba have been trashed with bots. Literally, it's like they've copied and pasted the same talking point over and over again, all over. They're they're all over our platforms right now. Um, Ben, can you talk to me about the history of these bots. Where are they coming from? I know, Alan, you kind of touched upon it a little bit, but can you go into further detail, um, Ben?
1: Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, it's it's clear we're seeing them in the in the comments here, and you right see now. them everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it, and we we have a lot of evidence of this. It's not just speculation. So, if if I can actually share my screen, and we'll try try to do this again here, we have there are that's that's actually there. We go. My man. bad. My bad. Well, I'll no, get to that in a second. Actually, I shared the wrong link. But this is this is an example of some of the the fake news being spread by not only bots, but also by right-wing politicians in the US and Latin America sharing photos here. This is obviously a photo of a protest in Egypt in 2011. I mean, there's only hundreds of Egyptian flags in the photo. I don't know why you would think you'd... I mean, it's, it's totally absurd. But you see all these bots... Uh, spreading this kind of fake news and and propaganda but there was actually I was meant to share this other link here this so
0: that, so that picture you just showed us was shared about Cuba
1: yeah I mean many times that that oh same God. image has been shared by by multiple people and not just we're not just talking about like the bot accounts I mean the bot accounts are sharing fake photos but we've mm. also even seen politicians like especially right-wing politicians in Latin America spreading those yeah. fake images but but in terms of the bots. This is the this is the, the tab I meant to share here. That even so, this is a, a Spanish language report, and it's based on the Inter American Commission of Human Rights. Now, this is a very biased institution. This is an arm of the Organization of American States, which of course over, helped overthrow the Bolivian government in the 2019 coup attempt. It was part, a participant in this this dirty coup campaign, claiming that there was fraud and and supposedly that Evo Morales stole the election. Totally false. But even they admitted, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, that there were over 68,000 bot accounts that were created immediately before, during, and after the Bolivia coup in 2019. And if you look at, I mean, I've looked at these bots for many years now and seen these campaigns. There were similar bots on Nicaragua. They're all doing the same thing. What they do is they have these hashtags, of course, like SOS Cuba, SOS Nicaragua. They spam celebrities and influencers to try to get them to speak out. They they spread the same talking points and they spread a lot of fake news. And by the way, I'll share my screen one more time here. Is there
0: there like a PR group that we can link this this back to?
1: I'm glad you asked, Manar. (laughs) Great great question, because this is exactly what I was going to get up here. So this is an article I wrote. This is from 2020. And it's about this group called CLS Strategies. And I wrote this at the Gray Zone. U.S. government-linked PR firm ran fake news networks for for Latin American regimes, right-wing regimes. And it talks about, I show clinically, I mean, we have evidence showing this because Facebook admitted it and, and Instagram, which is on my Facebook, admitted it, that there's this firm linked very closely to the U.S. government. It's in fact physically located a few blocks from the White House in downtown Washington. It's right next to the White House. And this firm was paid millions of dollars to spread propaganda for white right-wing groups in Venezuela, supporting the U.S. coup puppet, Juan Guaido, and supporting the right-wing in Bolivia and the coup. And these, these are the governments that this firm in the in D.C., right, located right next to the White House, has worked for. All of these governments. I mean, we're talking about do- dozens of governments. Brazil, the Spanish government, the Colombian government, right-wing forces in Mexico, the ar- right-wing in Argentina, I mean, they've worked for so many different governments, and let's look at some of the propaganda here. So these are this is according to this group run out of Stanford, which is like, I mean, they're not a very good group. The Internet Observatory, they like they've done all these dumb reports on like Russian bots and stuff, claiming that like you know all this RussiaGate stuff. This is one of the only useful reports they ever did. But they acknowledge these are a bunch of different pages created on Venezuela and Bolivia that were created on Facebook and also Instagram to spread all of this fake news and all of this propaganda. And you can see some of these pages were massive, 163,000 followers, 142,000 followers. And there's an example here. They even impersonated the, they claim to be a former, the FAN stands for uh, Fuerzas Armadas Nacionales, which is the National Armed Forces of Venezuela. So this is someone who's claiming to be a chavista and a former member of the armed forces of Venezuela spreading propaganda and fake news to demonize Venezuela. So we're talking about very sophisticated propaganda. Here there's this is a someone who claims to be a former a former military officer in Venezuela spreading propaganda about Juan Guaido and Trump. And there's here's an example from Bolivia where they're spreading cop uh, coup for the prop coup propaganda and here are some other accounts on instagram and these so this is all we have evidence of this it's not a matter of opinion here's this group cls strategies here is they actually registered with the us far office foreign agents registration act they registered to lobby on behalf of the bolivian coup regime so we have the receipts. We have the documents showing that these U.S. government backed firms have created bot campaigns and propaganda for the Bolivia coup, for the Venezuelan coup attempt, for so, the Nicaraguan coup attempt. And they're obviously doing something now in Cuba as well.
0: Um, you know, this is the same uh, playbook that's being used, as you said, in South America, but also the same playbook that was being used against Syria Um, and also to promote neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And if you argue with these people online, they are literally uh, promoting the idea that they want their country to be starved and sanctioned. They would rather have that than the current status quo in their country. Um, Well, sorry to interrupt,
1: Minar. It's even worse. Some of them are now calling for airstrikes because in Miami, a bunch of far-right politicians are calling for U.S. invasion and for airstrikes. And there's been some articles of these Miami-based groups that are saying that they, they want a U.S. style or a Syria-style humanitarian intervention in Cuba.
2: Yeah, that's right. the mayor of Miami saying that, by the way. That's not some, you know, guy on the street. And, uh, you know, uh, Anthony Sabatini, a congressman from Florida, said that uh, the U.S. should immediately start, you know, preparing the ground for it and that anyone in the Cuban government that didn't immediately lay down their arms and help them transition to democracy should be uh, put before a firing squad and executed. I mean, that's the sort of rhetoric that's coming out of elected US officials on social media and nothing is done about it.
0: Um, The sadistic propaganda that is being used to promote humanitarian uh, intervention and regime change is absolutely disgusting. I want to talk about who these people are in Miami. Any of you guys want to go and explain this to me? Alan, do you want to go off? you want to expand more on what you were just telling us about the mayor and and some of the people there? Uh,
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I suppose uh, Miami is often called the uh, capital of Latin America. And it's (laughs) a good reason. They've got a huge uh, Latin American population there. Generally, it's filled up with emigres of people who used to be uh, allied to right-wing regimes, dictatorships, a lot of them across Latin America, who once a more democratic country comes, uh, sorry, a more democratic government comes to power, they immediately flee, sometimes with millions in suitcases and set up shop in Miami. And uh, Cuba is no exception here. After the revolution of 1959, we see uh, a mass exodus of people Associated with the Batista regime, his you know bodyguards, his security guards, his torturers, people in the military, the police, uh, government officials, or just uh, general uh, business owners who had their huge uh, you know huge farms confiscated and broken up and turned into small plots or communal uh, gardens, or people who used to own casinos and you know had that taken off them, so they. Go over to Miami, have a very rich and fulfilling life there. And they can do that because the United States actively courts these people. So if you're a Cuban, you will have absolutely no problem getting a visa and just uh, getting uh, some sort of either citizenship or some sort of permanent uh, residency in the United States. You know, you try that if you're from Mexico or Guatemala, you're lucky if you don't end up in a concentration camp on the U.S. border. So Cubans are given this uh, very cushy life in comparison to the rest of Latin Americans. And that's really brought in a lot of uh, people to Florida and particularly to uh, Miami. Uh, One example of uh, how much of an echo chamber this place is, is that in 2013, uh, during the Venezuelan election, which uh, Nicolas Maduro won by about 51 to 49, uh, the embassy in the Venezuelan embassy in Miami recorded that between 95 and 99% of people casting ballots there voted for the far-right opposition candidate, Henrique Capriles-Rodonsky. So that's the sort of uh, feeling you get about what the sort of political atmosphere is in Miami. I remember even in the mid-2000s, people like George uh, W. Bush was kind of reticent to really associate with the the Miami community of expats so from Venezuela, from Cuba, from uh, other countries, because uh, they felt that they were a bit sort of too right wing and radical and crazy for them. So, yeah, we have this sort of huge network of uh, four, or, well, they are still Cubans, but, um, you know, either, you know, uh, sons or daughters of Cuban emigres who have this very sort of idealized vision of what Cuba should look like And what that really looks like is them getting back in charge. And we've now got a generation of uh, politicians as well who've grown up on this message, people like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, who want to go back there, uh, or at least see others go back there and uh, retake their casinos, retake their, their farm, retake their land that they lost in 1959. And that's really the driving force behind a lot of what these people want. They're really super reactionary, and they know that ultimately, if they can't get it through these soft power things, that it's going to have to come through bloodshed. And that is what we've seen with uh, people like Anthony Sabatini or um, Francis Suarez, the mayor of Miami's comments, is really their their ego and their id coming out to the, fr- uh, the forefront. And because uh, there's no one challenging that in the US, because there's not really a strong pro-Cuba, pro-Venezuela, pro-Bolivia lobby, uh, these sorts of talking points just uh, become just become natural to the point where if you say, uh, you know, Venezuela or Cuba is anything other than like a Nazi dictatorship destroying the world, you're seen as like some sort of out of space crazy guy from Neptune. And so, yeah, these Cuban emigrates really have a very good ideological use for the United States because it allows them to, um, develop a a really strong base, uh, a strong political base, an ideological base of people who will support the US empire no matter what, and also discipline people on the liberal left who, you know, maybe whose sympathies might lay with these uh, governments in Latin America, but don't dare speak out because they know they're going to get a huge amount of flack if they do. I remember um, the the, uh, coach of, I think, uh, he was, uh, uh, the Chicago Cubs at one point said something that basically made it sound like, uh, Venezuelan and Hugo Chavez wasn't the worst person ever. And he was just met with an absolute deluge of hate yeah. to the point where he had to just pull it back. And so all of these, uh, you know, sports stars or, or, uh, singers or rappers or whatever, they really have to toe the line. Most of them are very willing to do so, but some that might have differing opinions are really, uh, taught uh, and disciplined by this reactionary Cuban community that's in Miami.
1: Well, and, yeah, and I, if I can, if oh, I, I can well, add really quickly, just on Miami, just, on Miami, just having just spent, spent a lot of time there, the, time
0: there. It, well, the, the thing about the Miami,
1: thing which, about is Miami which is incredible is, incredible,
0: that, is that there, there is, I think there's an echo. <laughs> did, did you change something with your mic?
1: No, I didn't. Maybe, there we go. It's I think cool. maybe Alan probably uh, muted his mic. Okay. The thing about what's incredible Miami is there is a really big working class community of immigrants and ironically a lot of like the elite cuban immigrants to miami exploit other latinos there's like a there's like a to- racial totem pole and like the elite light-skinned cuban elites who fled after the cuban revolution exploit other latinos and they dominate politics locally in miami and there's this whole i mean there there is like a growing young movement of working class progressive latinos who have better politics but it's still dominated by this old money. And a lot of these people, like Alan said, who in many cases were not only big landlords, but in some cases were actually slave owners who fled Latin America, places like Cuba, and the revolutions. And we should really emphasize here that that this is deeply embedded within the CIA and U.S. intelligence communities. Because that's another point that we really need to stress when we're talking about Miami, is that there's a very long history of the CIA using these communities as weapons against progressive forces in Latin America. Just as we've seen that the U S government has tried to weaponize immigrant communities from Syria, from Yemen to try to spread propaganda against the Syrian government, against the Yemeni Ansar Allah movement, and to try to create like to cultivate these kind of right-wing pro-imperialist pro-war leaders and use them as proxies. Except in the case of Miami, It goes even step further to violence, and I just want to—I really want to stress this point. People need to understand that the CIA has a history of terrorist attacks in in Venezuela as well, but in in uh, Cuba. So, people know often about the contra war in Nicaragua in the 1980s, in which the CIA created these terrorist armies that that carried out horrible massacres against civilians and burned down schools and hospitals here in Nicaragua. Well, the U.S. did something very similar in Cuba. So, in 1976, CIA backed terrorists blew up a civilian Cuban airliner, massacring dozens of people. They also have used dozens of bombs to blow up hotels and other buildings, targeting tourism. I mean, I, I mentioned that earlier, but I just want to stress these points. And where, where is the basis of these terror attacks? In Miami. That's where the, the CIA recruits these far right Cuban forces. Many of them from rich, wealthy families who want to they want to go back to Cuba and retake control of their of the country and the economy and have slaves again. And these are this is the hotbed for CIA recruitment. And they, they've been involved in so many different terror attacks going back decades. So we're talking about a kind of Operation Gladio style base of operations. And it's no surprise that the political climate there is so extreme there's this now. There's this new Congresswoman um, Maria Elvira Sa- uh, Sal- uh, What's her last name? Salazar. Uh, Maria Elvira Salazar. She filled in the the. She just entered the Congress, and she took the seat of Eliana Ross Leighton. Eliana Ross Leighton had been one of like the main far right Cuban lobby uh, politicians, along with of course with Marco Rubio and if you look at their rhetoric, I mean, it's the most extreme of the radical right wing in the U.S. So there's this kind of dialectical relationship where just as the U.S. helped create Al Qaeda and helped create these extremist groups to wage war against the Soviet Union in the 1980s, and then they were later repurposed against Syria and against Iran and all these other countries. There's the exact same phenomenon in Miami to such a degree that the Miami-Dade county city council for the county or rather the county council, they've recently voted to declare the Sandinista Front in Nicaragua, the political party, as a terrorist organization. Wow. We're talking about they're fascists. I mean, it's a hub for fascism. And it's not a coincidence that this hub has been pushing U.S. politics more and more right every single year. So it's it's a feedback loop, just as The U.S. helped create al-Qaeda in Afghanistan in the 1980s. They helped create these fascist movements in Latin America. And it it not only pushes Latin American politics to the right, but it pushes U.S. politics to the right.
0: Absolutely. So basically the expats in Miami are being repurposed, radicalized and weaponized uh, to push this right wing extremism um, throughout Latin America and to push that ideology here in the United States by the intelligence community. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I want to go back to kind of the root, you know, the root of why Cuba is a target. What makes it economically a target of the U.S. empire? Um, Ben, can you talk about that?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we, we have some, we have some good comments. We also have a lot of trolls here, but someone asked in the comments and I'll respond to it. It's related to your question what makes Cuba and Haiti targets? Like, what resources do they have? And the answer is that it's not really just resources. Of course, resources are a very important thing. We even have academic studies showing that countries that have large hydrocarbons reserves, like oil and gas, are more than 100 times more likely to have a foreign intervention in their country. So, of course, resources are part of it. But in the case of Latin America and the Caribbean countries like Cuba and Haiti, it's also punishing these governments that had revolutions and making sure that they can never rise again, especially if they're so geo- geopolitically strategic for the U.S. empire. Cuba is just, it's just over about an hour, an hour and a half flight from Florida. I mean, it's extremely close to the United States. And Cuba has been a main hub for international revolutionary, progressive, and anti-imperialist movements since 1959. It's not just the threat of a good example in terms of the fact that Cuba has an actually has a lower it has a lower infant mortality rate than the United States. This poor island nation that's been under a, a medieval blockade for 60 years has a lower infant mortality rate than the richest country on earth, the United States. Cuba has a slightly higher life expectancy than the United States, even and especially in black and Latino communities in the United States, where communities are really oppressed and there's so much poverty and few opportunities for good employment that the life expectancy is much lower in those communities. In Cuba, it's way higher. So Cuba also has free healthcare and education, which is a symbol to people around the world that, yes, you can have not only free socialized medicine, but it can be a very effective system. Cuba has created five COVID vaccines, five COVID vaccines, this tiny blockaded country. And Cuba has sent its medical brigades during COVID to more than 30 countries around the world. Even Italy, rich countries like Italy have been helped by Cuban doctors. Cuba also has trained literally, it's not an exaggeration, literally hundreds of thousands of doctors around the world in dozens of countries because Cuba has medical training programs. There are even doctors in poor, largely black and brown communities in the United States There are doctors there who were trained in Cuba for free. So Cuba has so many programs. And also Cuba has been a major part of trying to build a political axis, a a multipolar world and trying to build international institutions that go around the chokehold that Washington and Brussels have in the international, not only financial system, but also the political system. So people might know about the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank the US and Brussels use these institutions to trap countries in debt so they have to privatize all their their assets they can they have to do trade in the dollar they have to pay off their debt in US dollars which means that they're they're beholden to the US dollar whereas Cuba is part of a movement of other anti-imperialist countries not only in Latin America but also with Iran with Belarus with China with Russia with Zimbabwe with many countries around the world to try to build new trading blocks. So you can do trade in other currencies, not just the dollar. So you can actually have a new entire political system. So they're working a lot with the United Nations right now to create a new block within the UN. That They just launched a group that's called the Group of the Friends of the United Nations Charter. And that's led by Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, China, Russia, Zimbabwe, Iran, Syria, Belarus, all these countries are working together to challenge the political and economic dictatorship led by the United States and the European Union. And that's, rec- that's also not only through the IMF and the World Bank, but through NATO. NATO is the political military arm. So Cuba, even though it's a small country, it punches well above its, its weight in international politics. And the U.S., what does the U.S. want for Cuba? The U.S. wants to turn Cuba into the Dominican Republic, a country where... With all respect to the Dominican people, I mean they have they've they've suffered so much and there's there is a resistance, but I've seen with my own eyes the horrors of the Dominican Republic, the poverty, the horrific rates of prostitution. If you walk down the street, there will be many people who will come up to you. I mean, we're talking about extreme poverty, extreme inequality, extreme racism and and violence in the Dominican Republic. We have to compare apples to apples and not apples to oranges. People always compare Cuba To a rich imperialist country like in Western Europe or the United States, which got their wealth based on colonization and exploitation and slavery, Cuba has developed its wealth totally based internally despite the blockade. So we have to compare it to its own neighbors in Latin America and the Caribbean. And what the U.S. wants Cuba to be is like the Dominican Republic or Haiti, Haiti, basically a failed state. That has no sovereignty no control over its own affairs
0: and look at i mean what the united states has done to libya it's now a failed state with you know slave markets that are operating on the streets of libya and libya was very similar to cuba in the middle east no country is perfect of course khabab is not perfect but there's a lot of good things to say about what libya was before the u.s intervention so i definitely see some parallels here as to how the united states envisions uh, the future of Cuba. It wants it to be a failed state that it can plunder and occupy. I mean, right now, Guantanamo Bay is uh, is there uh, where the United States is a military base uh, and a uh, prison there uh, with um, uh, people in prison there uh, through the war on terror. And so, Alan, can you talk to me a little bit about Guantanamo Bay and the U.S. relationship uh, with that?
2: Yeah, I suppose... Um One of the key uh, things that a lot of Americans have trouble wrapping their head around is that the United States is an empire. And in the late 19th century, it really finished colonizing the territorial mass of North America. And almost immediately it started looking further afield to the Pacific, to places like the Philippines or Guam, or down to the Caribbean, places like Cuba. The US uh, intervened in the Cuban War of Independence against the Spanish Empire in the 1890s and effectively took over and turned it into something approaching a colony. It supported the Batista di- uh, dictatorship until it fell in 1959. And part of the um, the deal that the US struck in 1898 uh, with Cuba was that it would forever have uh, the rights to use Guantanamo Bay as a coaling station for some of its ships. Now we know that that has been completely, uh, you know, blown out of the water. Uh, Guantanamo Bay is not used as a stopping point for, you know, U.S. trading ships. It's used as a black site where people from all around the world can be taken, kept for years without trial, tortured all the time. Guantanamo Bay is not just, you know, a camp, there's actually thousands of people there. In fact, it's so big that they have a McDonald's on the site. If so, you know, if you really need some if you really need a job and you don't have that many skills, maybe apply for a job at uh, Guantanamo Bay McDonald's might be an interesting place to work, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, listen, there are obviously human rights problems in Cuba, there are human rights problems in every country in the world. But what a lot of the discourse around Cuba fails to point out is that so much of the human rights problems in Cuba are actually uh, as a result of being under this massive blockade where the world's sole superpower is constantly at its door and constantly you know, trying to infiltrate its media, its politics, its art scene, what have you, to the point where the Cubans have to take some sort of defensive actions. I mean, in World War II, when the United States was... Um, At war with Japan, what did they do to the Japanese Americans? They put them all in concentration camps essentially. Now, if you're an American and you go to Cuba, you're gonna be thrown in Guantanamo Bay. But if you're from you know Iraq and you get picked up at the wrong point and you were in the wrong place, wrong time, maybe you will go to Guantanamo Bay. So a lot of the human rights discourse around Cuba often, you know, misses out the two biggest human rights problems in Cuba, which is the blockade, which is denying the rights to a better livelihood, right to medicine, right to food, to millions of people. And also this absolute monstrosity, which is at the far east of the island, which is this uh, torture camp, which has been active for decades. And uh, frankly, it doesn't seem like it's going to go away anytime soon, regardless of what Obama or the next president might say about closing it.
0: Um, and I want to I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Western militarism and imperialism, and why the United States specifically, Israel, and I want to I want to I want to do a, a highlight on Israel because Israel here because Israel is obviously a proxy of uh, the U.S. empire and military machine, and Israel has been one of the leading countries in its uh, attacks against Cuba and also Venezuela as well. And so, Ben, I'm curious to know what are Israel's interests in continuing to vote against the block uh, against lifting the blockade against Cuba and what kind of sabotage have you seen and reported on perhaps uh, that Israel has taken against Cuba.
1: Great question. And if I can share my screen again really quickly I yeah. just want to show just so people visually can see I mean it's it's so striking this vote at the UN this was just a few weeks ago and it shows again almost every country on earth including many Western European imperialist powers, like even Britain, yeah, or even Britain voted against the blockade technically. I mean, we're not talking about like, they're all anti-imperialist countries, but the only country that joined the US in supporting the blockade of the United Nations was apartheid Israel. And of course, as you mentioned, Israel is an extension of US imperialism in many ways. It was created at first as an extension of British colonialism during the British Empire with the Balfour Declaration And then after World War II, and then especially after the Suez crisis and the 1967 war, when Israel began attacking neighboring Arab states, then Israel really came into the U.S. camp and became a bulwark against Arab nationalism and anti-imperialist movements and communism in the so-called Middle East and West Asia. And Israel in Latin America has played a similar role Of course, its role is not nearly as big as the U.S. simply because of geography. The U.S. often uses Israel and they work together against other countries in West Asia, other resistance forces, which makes sense geographically. But Israel has has played an important role in destabilizing and attacking progressive forces in Latin America. And in Cuba, it's not only in terms of the blockade, but also in Central America, where I am right now, it's especially clear. And Israel plays this role and it's it's an example of how when the democratic party claims to try to do something good it often actually doesn't change anything and can even make things even worse actually so in the 1980s what happened is that there were back then there used to be a few anti-war democrats in congress i know it's crazy to think about now but there were a few democrats who were against the reagan administration's terror war against the sandinista government here in nicaragua and against the progressive uh, revolutionary socialist forces in El Salvador the FMLN and in other parts of Central America the CIA created the Contra death squads was arming and training these fascists who were massacring civilians torturing people burning down civilian areas and there were a few democrats who opposed that policy i mean it was partially for you know opportunistic you know partisan reasons because it was a republican administration under Reagan but they did vote against the CIA arming These Contra forces. So, what happened is that the CIA simply went to Israel. And this is also true for Guatemala specifically. The Congress passed legislation because the US was supporting this vicious, murderous dictatorship in Guatemala that carried out literal genocide. It was, in fact, one of the very few cases at the international court where a country has been tried and found guilty of genocide under the US backed dictatorship of Ephraim Rios Montt. He was an evangelical Christian Zionist, by the way, which partially explains the the ideological links to Israel, how Israel got involved, because the U.S. also at this time was supporting right-wing evangelical forces as a counterbalance against what's called liberation theology in Latin America, because many Catholics, especially progressive Catholics, realized that these that these societies were deeply unfair, unequal, and that if you read the Bible, Jesus was pretty socialistic and he threw he threw the moneylenders out of the temple and he preached supporting the poor and, and helping the poor. So there were a lot of Catholics in particular who became very left-wing and even socialists and revolutionaries. So what happened is the US began supporting these right-wing evangelical forces like in Guatemala. And of course, many of them were also Zionists. They, they saw Israel, some godly state, And So in the case of Guatemala, when Congress passed restrictions on supporting the horrific genocidal junta in Guatemala that was getting millions of dollars of U.S. military aid per day and that was carrying out a scorched earth genocidal campaign to massacre indigenous Maya communities in Guatemala after the U.S. was no longer able to openly directly arm them, what did they do? They went to, to Israel. And Israel did the same exact dirty work on behalf of the CIA and the U.S. government. They also did the same thing here in Nicaragua. So Israel, what it does is it helps Mossad, particularly, and the Israeli military. They help the U.S. military with these operations, with intelligence, they are spying on a bunch of different things. Also, Israel and the CIA have been key players in surveillance technology. Of course, still today, we know that. And of course, Israel uses the Gaza concentration camp as a way to to test new technology, but also going back to the 1980s. We know because of CIA whistleblowers like Philip Adji that the CIA and Israel and Mossad were developing surveillance technology back in the 1970s and 80s and using them in Central America and other parts of Latin America. And then what they did is that the CIA would use front groups and Mossad would use front groups and the the Israeli government would sell this technology to the dictatorships in Latin America. And then there was a backdoor in the surveillance technology. So the Mossad and CIA would be able to, they would sell, for instance, to the Guatemalan military junta and to the other military regimes in Latin America, like in Argentina and the Chile Pinochet dictatorship. They would sell them surveillance technology that the regimes used to spy on leftist dissidents. But at the same time, the CIA and Mossad also had a backdoor access to all of that surveillance technology. So they use it to help create this massive surveillance apparatus. Not recently, not with the NSA, we're talking about the 70s and 80s. So when we look at U.S. operations, Israel very much works hand in glove with the U.S., not only in West Asia, but also in Latin America.
0: Absolutely. There's a there's an intersection and... In, um and come, ugh, inter, I can't even talk anymore. There's an intersection between the U.S. national security state and the Israeli national security state to spy and surveil and sabotage. Um, and, you know, talking about all of this, I want to conclude with international and uh, international law. Uh, the United States cannot be taken to the ICC because it's not ratified. The ICC It's not a signatory for the ICC. Yet we have people like Trump in the past. Um, Mike Pompeo. Um, And I believe John Bolton, who have directly threatened the ICC if the United States is brought to the ICC. I mean, we've just you both have just laid out all of the human rights abuses that the United States has has committed against a lot of these Latin American countries, but especially against Cuba. Um, And then also, you know, I want to I want, you know, Ben or Alan, whichever one, whichever you guys prefer to speak about this. I want to talk about how can the United States be Um, held accountable for its human rights violations, because according to international law and under the UN uh, Geneva Convention, um, it is not Cuba violating international law. It's actually the United States that's violating international law uh, through its military operations, through its, you know, the sanctions it has um, slapped on Cuba are illegal under international law. And so I want you guys to expand on this to explain how we can hold the United States accountable for its human rights abuses. I mean, people ask all the time, why can't the United States be held accountable? What is the answer to that question? Uh,
2: Well, I'll keep it short. Um, I suppose, I guess the point is, is that ultimately uh, the world doesn't work on laws. It works on power. You were talking about the International Criminal Court. The U.S. actually has a document called the Netherlands Invasion Act, which states that if, the uh, Invasion Act, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which states that if uh, an American official is taken to court and is attempt the attempt to try him, the U.S. will actually invade the Netherlands to uh, get him back. Which is, you know, an incredible statement, thinking. They're both in NATO. Thinking what the Netherlands is like. That's how crazy it would be. Uh, just to consider that point. So yeah, I mean, ultimately, the world's even though we have these rules and regulations, they are really meant for the poor. The rich can break them whenever they want. And so your question about how we really hold the US accountable or change the situation, it's ultimately only going to change when there is a sea change of opinion in the United States itself, which is the most uh, important and the most uh, powerful country in the world, uh, bar none, and by quite a long way. And so really that... um, that really puts the onus on young Americans, people who are anti-war, people who uh, are thinking people, who you know see the world as it really is, to really organize and to try and take back some of this power so we can really actually build a movement and change the US from within. Because ultimately, a lot of the people who do incredible things, these revolutionaries in Asia or Latin America that some of us have been mentioning uh, today, um, ultimately, they're power and scope is limited because they live in the global South, people listening to this who might feel like powerless or whatever, actually you've been born at just the right time. You have uh, a certain degree of uh, privilege if you're watching this and you you can speak and uh, you've been educated. You actually have a considerable amount of power in your hands, even if you don't realize it. And because you have that power, I think uh, with power comes responsibility. And so ultimately, everybody watching this has a responsibility to do everything they can to change the situation. Because if we don't do that, billions of people will continue to suffer completely needlessly. Another world is certainly possible. And it's up to people like us to make it.
0: Well, we have the Democratic Party who loves to just hijack those (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hijack those social justice movements. Um, I would say
2: but- it's probably not going to get changed completely just by voting for the Democrats.
0: Absolutely. No, and I agree with you, Alan. And actually, I feel very inspired by what you just said because I, I tend to agree with you on that. The problem is that we have uh, the very powerful Democratic Party who, um, you know, very much presents itself as this you know, arm of resistance and socialists and, you know, for social justice, you know, look, look, look what happened to the Black Lives Matter movement. A lot of uh, the leaders are very much aligned with the Democratic Party uh, and people like Joe Biden, who wrote the crime bill, who basically built uh, the infrastructure in this country to build like the prison industrial complex and the police state. And the same thing with Kamala Harris. Uh, And so I I believe that there is a lot of hope within the people, but there's also this infrastructure that's built in the United States by the democratic party, which pushed neoliberal economic policies and ideas through social media tech giants who basically control the narrative. So we have to really break through all of that um, for real change to happen, which is why it's so important to support independent uh, media and journalism. And there's literally just, we're just a, a small handful of outlets and people um, who, who truly see the world through the lens of Western imperialism. Um, ben, did you want to add anything um, on those points before we wrap up?
1: No, I mean, I, I, th- I think you, I, you both engaged with it really well. You said exactly what I was going to say. I would just add that it's really important for anyone watching this who's a U.S. citizen to understand that if you really want to help the Cuban people, as Mexican President AMLO said, you can lift the blockade. That's the most important thing that people watching this should understand because that is the most important factor in the economic problems in Cuba. And if people say they they care so much about Cuban lives, then it's very easy to to support those Cuban lives and support the Cuban economy and the illegal criminal US blockade. And the last thing I want to say is that there's this idea. I saw Ana Kasparian from TYT claimed that Obama lifted the blockade? That's not true. That's totally false. Obama, yes, he normalized diplomatic relations with Cuba and lifted some sanctions, but the blockade was not lifted. In fact, the Obama administration at the same time began imposing sanctions on Venezuela, which led to a total blockade of Venezuela right now, which Mm. is based on the blockade of Cuba. So the Democratic Party. It's not like if Joe Biden, maybe I mean, looking at his statement, he's openly supporting these protests, obviously, and trying to further destabilize the Cuban government. But even let's say he I don't think this is going to happen, but let's be generous and say that maybe he goes back to the Obama era policies. That's not nearly enough, nearly enough where all all they did was normalize. Diplomatic relations, while continuing to try to destabilize Cuba, while continuing to fund these groups like the so-called San Isidro movement, which is one of the this U.S. government-funded astroturf group that's behind a lot of these protests, it's still gone on. So we need to have an actual end to the blockade and all sanctions, not just a normalization of political relations. It's not nearly okay. enough, Absolutely. and we should stop whitewashing the Obama years because unfortunately there are a lot of people who, you know, especially kind of like soft liberals, they might, they might acknowledge that the US has negative policies against Cuba, but they act as though those are all Trump's fault. And yes, Trump did impose many more sanctions on Cuba that have really hurt the Cuban people, but it's a bipartisan problem very much. And we have to totally break with that bipartisan policy.
0: Well, and, that, and that's exactly, it's a bipartisan policy that no matter who's in office whether it's a democrat or a republican they just continue that policy in fact they just expand that policy even further uh, the the next president that comes just you know takes off where the last president left off um and so that's a wrap for today's uh mintcast live stream Again, we were live on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook. This will be available on our YouTube channel after this conversation is done and on our Facebook. And it will be available um, as a podcast, audio podcast, on the Midcast account on Spotify and iTunes. Thank you both gentlemen so much. Uh, That was such a wealth of information. Um, I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you.
2: Yeah, it was good to be with you. Also, one last thing, pick up The Grey Zone. Everybody should go there and bookmark it and also subscribe to the Moderate Rebels podcast as well.
0: Absolutely. So, Thank Mitt you, Alan. Of course, follow The Grey Zone and follow our work and make sure to support all of the independent media outlets, including Mint Press and The Grey Zone, on our Patreon pages. Thank you, guys. Hey, I'll oh.
1: Everyone go to Mint Press News <laughs> and support <laughs> Mint Press. Everyone give your money to Mint Press. Thank you so uh, much. One of, the, one of the best websites out there. We are very happy at the gray zone to have friends and comrades over at Mint Press and look forward to working together more in the future.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Ben. That's very humbling. Thank you guys so much. Have a good day.
2: Good to speak with you.